So you are here this morning, you're a wife, and I would just kind of throw this question out there to you. If you're here and you're a wife, and you would say, you know, in good conscience, I am a perfect wife. Just, just raise your hand. Raise your hand if, that, if that's the case. <laughs> Figured we would have... Maybe so. No, absolutely not. So you're a husband. You're here for this series on the family. And you would say today, you know, I, I think I really am a perfect husband. How about you? Just raise your hand. It's not happening. It's not happening. One of the things that I want to constantly encourage us to do is to think about this. As we see and endure the imperfections of our spouses... As wives see and endure the imperfections of their husbands, and as husbands see and endure the imperfections of their wives, my hope is that within yourself you will constantly say these words, I can't raise my hand either. I can't raise my hand either. There is no husband that's perfect. There is no wife that's perfect. And, and this ser- series of sermons is not meant to, to, to create in you a sense that you, that you uh, have to be perfect. The purpose of, of these sermons is to show you God's will for husbands and wives and families as it comes out of his word. And to show the ideal. To show what it is that God's spirit is moving us towards. And to pray to the end that we become these kinds of husbands and, and wives. So I also want just to make this other preliminary comment about marital frustration. I know that uh, even just being a pastor, you see marital frustration on both sides, husbands and wives. And that may be you here this morning. You're frustrated. Maybe you've been frustrated at certain things that came up in, in in a sermon, or you've been frustrated really just throughout the entire series, or at least if you're a wife, the husband portion, and if you're a husband, the wife portion. And here's one of the things that I would would say to you that, that will, I think, help to deal with those frustrations. And it's this, marital frustration can be used for your sanctification. This is, marital frustration fits in the same category as every other kind of trial that we face as believers in Jesus. And so we open up James and we read in chapter 1 that these various kinds of trials that when we have them we rejoice because they work for us endurance and they work for us hope. They sanctify us. They are a means by which God creates greater dependence on him. A means by which we grow in appreciation of his grace and we grow in the ability to extend God's grace out to other people. And so... Even your marital frustrations can be for you a means of God's grace, can be for you a means of sanctification. So don't let these sermons feed despair. And that's a a big hope here because maybe as you're going through these, especially if you're a wife and and you're you're looking out at your husband, you're saying that there's a huge disconnect here. Or, Or the other way around, there's a huge disconnect here. And so the temptation is just to say, man, my life's ruined. I married the wrong person. What have I done? And there's just despair. And you're left in that place, you know, and you think, well, I'll pray and I'll do this, but I'm just despairing. You let this be a means that God uses to grow you in trust in him and in your own holiness before him. So my family, for his glory, that is the series of sermons that we are currently 
working through. And these are based on Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 4. As I said at the very beginning of this series, this is not meant to be an exhaustive treatment of all things related to the family, but it really is meant to be an exposition of Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 4 as we go through and see wives, husbands, children, fathers, and by extension, parents. And so the intention very much is to, to stay close to what the te- this text, or the most elaborate text in all of the Bible about family life, has to say about the family. And as we do that, as we walk our way verse by verse through this text, we're able to, to glean from the rest of the Bible. To see how other passages throughout the Bible illuminate, illuminate the passage that we are studying. So we're on the seventh sermon in this series, and the third sermon on husbands... And there won't be any more. So take heart, husbands, no more. Uh, just three. And uh, it, it, there, was, there was one moment where I thought we might go into four. But that, that just, that'd, be, that'd be overkill. Husbands would be just beat down. Uh, two for wives. I think three for husbands is sufficient. But what we have tried to do, if you'll go ahead and put up that slide, Thomas, I appreciate it. Uh, these are the various things that we have seen as we go through this passage. Specifically verses 25 to 33. As we've gone through, these are the activities of a godly husband or of a husband as we see him described in this passage. Uh, He is one who destroys. There he destroys selfishness in his own life. He's one who initiates. He perseveres. He protects. He disciples. And last week we looked at these last two, these number four and five. He protects and he disciples. And this week we will look at he unites, he provides, and he treasures. And one of the things that I have hopefully been able to get you to see is that all of these activities are really an outworking of three larger concepts. And they are that the husband is a leader. So in every one of these, the husband steps out as a leader. As a leader, he puts to death selfishness in his life. He initiates, perseveres, and so on and so forth. He's, he's a lover. We see that throughout this passage, the, the, the main injunction, the, the, the main instruction that Paul gives is to love your wives. That's repeated over and over and over again. And throughout that, he, is, he says, love your wives as what? As Christ loves the church. So the husband is also a lamp. He is a leader. He is a lover. He is a lamp, meaning that he, he illuminates Christ. He shows forth Christ. His role is Christological. A husband points to Christ as he loves his wife, as Christ loves loves the church, and he has that very evangelistic role in everything that he does. And so being a leader, a lover, and a lamp is at the heart of what it means to be a biblical husband. So let's look at our passage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Ephesians 5, verse 25. To 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray today for wives that this will bring some encouragement to wives, and that even more, that wives will begin to see, even today, changes happening in the hearts of us husbands. Our Father, we thank you for our wives. We thank you, God, that you have given us these precious brides, these, these women whom you've entrusted to our care, these women whom we love as Christ loved the church. What a, what a high standard there is for husbands. And God, we know that we fall short of that standard, and that is why we need a Redeemer, Christ himself, who is righteous and who gives us his righteousness before your holy face. And God, it's in that righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus alone, that we hope not in our ability to attain perfection as husbands, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to our account before your holy face, that you would call us sons and daughters in Christ. And yet, God, we, we read that being filled with your spirit, we are empowered to do many things for your glory. And one of those things is to love our wives well, as Christ loved the church. And so, God, would you empower husbands? Would you strengthen us? Would you help us to trust in Christ's righteousness first and foremost and out of that to be empowered by your sanctifying Holy Spirit that we might in every way, every day lay our lives down for our wives and love them in the right way. God, would you greatly convict and burden and yet encourage husbands in this room. Every husband, not a single one of us, is as we ought to be. Would you work in our hearts today and bring real change? And God, would our wives be encouraged and would they see that change? Would we leave here different today than when we came? And God, would, would, it, be, would it be demonstrated that your word is powerful and that what Jesus said when he prayed, sanctify them with your word, with your truth, your word is truth, that that truth will be demonstrated, that the power of your word to sanctify, to uproot sin and to purify and make righteous and, and, and make holy God, that that will be demonstrated even today as people leave changed. God, would you work? Would Christ shine through this perfect parable, this perfect image, this wonderful copy of the reality which is Christ and his church? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first, well, the sixth, but the first for today, uh, activity that we will look at for husbands is that the godly husband, the Christ-like husband, is one who unites. And here's the main thing I want you to see. The husband has a responsibility to recognize and to maintain the unity that he has with his wife. A responsibility to recognize and maintain the unity that he has with his wife. In a moment, we'll discuss the caring activity that grows out of that unity... But for now, I simply want to draw your attention to the unity itself. It would be easy to kind of skip over that and to go to the specifics and the details, but I think we need to just get the basic truth down pat first. We need to understand that first. And as we read in verses 28 to 33, let's go there and read those verses. Verses 28 to 33, focus on precisely what Paul is saying here about the relationship between the husband and the wife in the same way Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, 
but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And I'll just, I'll just stop there. As we read through these verses, verses 28 to 32, there's a general truth that underlies everything that we find. And it's this. The husband and wife become one entity, one unit in marriage. Paul shows us that this union goes all the way back to creation. And so here we notice this quote. We have it up on the wall there. <laughs> this quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and it's found in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul goes all the way back to chapter 2 of Genesis and he says that this is the way it was meant to be in creation. One unity, husband and wife. And it is this oneness that Paul has in mind when he says in verses 28 to 29 that husbands should love their wives, what? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And we are told that this oneness between husband and wife was designed by God to be a constant visual portrayal of this wonderful oneness between Christ and his church. And we exist here this morning. We are a unity. In fact, as we look out uh, among each other, as we will go out into the foyer after the service and talk to one another, pray for one another, as we meet in gospel community groups, we are experiencing a kind of oneness. Love one another is a constant command throughout the New Testament. We're experiencing this unity and this oneness because of the oneness that exists between Christ and every single believer and the church as a whole. So we feel that unity. We model and image that unity as a body here this morning. And marriage is meant to portray that as well. And so, verse 32 says that the one flesh marital words of Genesis 2.24 refer to Christ and the church. And then he says in verse 30, we as the church are members of his body. And so it shouldn't, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that as we read throughout the New Testament, we see this language of Christ and the church being understood in terms of this word that maybe some of us are familiar with and some of us not, covenant. That the relationship between Christ and his church is a covenant, the new covenant in his blood, by his spirit. And it should be no surprise to us that we see this exact same language Right, given what we're looking at here, it's no surprise that we see this exact same language used of marriage throughout the Bible. And so Proverbs 2, 16 to 17. There is an adulterous woman who is described in this way. One who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, meaning her marriage. Also Malachi 2, 14. There is a reason why the Lord does not receive the offerings of the people, as the prophet says. And it's this, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So Christ and the church united in this thing called a covenant, and the husband and his wife united in this thing also called a covenant. 
And I've already re referred to this definition before, but I want to draw your attention to Andreas Kostenberger's uh, definition of a marital covenant in his book, God, Marriage, and Family. And this is how he defines covenant. It is a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by and publicly entered into before God. I want you to see these two ideas above all. A, a sacred bond, there's the one flesh, before God. Emphasis there very much on the idea of the covenant before God. Whether or not this is acknowledged by the married couple, normally consummated by sexual intercourse. That's the way he defines the marital covenant. And he goes on to describe it as permanent, sacred, intimate, mutual, and exclusive. So all of this to say, to make this one basic point. Just as Christ unites himself with his church, evidenced by our being here together from very different backgrounds, very diff different inclinations, very different personalities, together imaging the fact that Christ unites himself with his church by the Holy Spirit, just as Christ does this, head and body, the husband must also unite himself with his wife. And he must do this every day. So what exactly does it look like for the husband to unite with his wife? I want to look at three major applications here as we kind of apply this to real life. Husband uniting himself to his wife. The first thing I think the husband must do is he must unite himself to his wife mentally. The husband unites mentally. And that basically begins very much with this idea that you're just constantly reminding yourself this person with whom I am married, this person in my home, this person who is, is together we're raising these children. We look at our children and we see our unity in their faces, don't we? We see the, the, the characteristics, the features of mother and father. Sometimes, sometimes it's just totally like the dad, totally like the mom. But by and large, children themselves are little incarnations of the wonderful one flesh unity that exists between a husband and a wife. And so I think it's important that a husband always remind himself, this person with whom I live is not a separate entity. It's, this person is not a roommate. And you might say, well, yeah, this goes without saying, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Because oftentimes we just kind of go through life and we have ourselves and our wife and we see the, the two of us as separate. We're just living together, talking together sometimes. There's no real sense that this person is one with me before God in a very special way. I also want to make just this side note. Husbands, do you focus on your wife more than your kids I think that it would be easy to think, to take pride in being a good dad. It'd be easy, you know, if you're very plugged in with your kids, that's something that, that maybe you, you, you're, you, you would say, you know, I do that. I'm good at that. I, I, I pay attention to my kids. I invest in my kids. I'm not a checked out dad. But before that comes being a good husband. Because the best thing you can do, the best thing we can do for our kids is be good husbands to our wives. And so as we think about this union that exists between husband and wife in our minds, the question is, do we put more focus on our kids or on our wives? Sometimes wives get pushed to the side because the kids become the focus. I think there's another thing here as we think about uniting ourselves with our wives Mentally, we are protecting ourselves from mental invaders. 
And I primarily here want to talk about lust and the temptation to lust. One of the most fundamental things that every man must do if he is going to preserve the union, the unity between himself and his wife is he must protect himself from lustful invaders in his mind. And the battleground really is the mind when it comes to the unity of the marriage. And it starts with gazing. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed, committed adultery with her in his heart. So, of course, you're a man and you're out in public, you're, you're out at work or wherever you are, and you notice that there is a woman who is attractive. You notice that she's attractive. You see beauty when you look at her. But here's, here's the thing that, that, men, that we men do that then becomes sinful. When we begin to gaze, then we begin to mentally dwell. And as we begin to mentally dwell on that beauty, we begin to step into precisely what Jesus is talking about when he says that you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Guys, you need to understand this. Every time, every time a man looks at pornography, he commits adultery with his wife according to Jesus' words. And will be disciplined for that by God. Every single time. See, I think there's a problem in the church. And it is that we put up with, we sort of abide with, we, we just sort of pat on the head things like pornography. Well, you know, people do it and it becomes a thing. And, you know, it's not a habit. But every once in a while, something like that must be eradicated from a husband's life. Entirely. Not just habitually, but entirely, because that is a great enemy in every way, at every level. That is a great enemy of the unity that you have with your wife. You must unite yourself with her mentally. And that involves protecting from mental invaders, lustful invaders. So how do you do this? Proverbs 5.19 gives the answer. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? So here's the answer to the question. You say, well, you know, I'm struggling with lust. Lose yourself in the bride whom God has get given you. Rejoice in your precious bride, the one whom God has given you. To satisfy you in that way, the one whom God has given you, so that you can satisfy her in that way. If you don't rejoice in the wife of your youth, your eyes and your mind will stray and they will dwell and adultery is what follows. So he unites himself mentally and then building on that he unites himself physically. And I think this has the obvious application of, you know, kind of Leaving mommy and daddy, you know. I mean, so this may, you may think also this goes without saying, but sometimes it might be difficult for men to kind of leave mom and dad and go off and start a new home with this woman that God has given you and to be responsible for that family unit and not to be always depending on mom and dad or running to mom and dad, but to be responsibly head, leader of this home. That is part of what it means, I think, to unite yourself physically to your wife. Also, we have this idea of one flesh. Now, one flesh, 
The physical act of sexual intercourse is an expression. You have to see this. It is a physical expression of a deep union. So the physical act of sexual intercourse is meant to show forth, put on display, remind, express the fact that you're one. You are one entity before God. All of this unity language, all of this love language is expressed in that act. Hopefully there you see how sexual intercourse has only one place. It has only one home. And that is in a marriage between a man and a woman who are demonstrating and expressing this reality through this physical act. As a result, sexual intercourse must be exclusive. Hebrews 13.4 says that we are to keep the marriage bed undefiled. If you want to know how to keep the marriage bed undefiled, you rejoice in the wife of your youth and you protect your mind from mental invaders. Those things that come in and take the focus off of your precious bride. Exclusive, but also consistent. 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5, I'll read this passage. It says this, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, Conjugal rights, we don't say that very much, but that basically means sexual intercourse. And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Come together again and listen to this. As we think about spiritual warfare, last week we talked about protection. It says this, Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So husbands, we have a real responsibility to protect the consistency of sex with our wife. It's that simple. We have a responsibility to monitor that and to protect it. And here's the thing. That can't happen if that's entirely selfish-focused. That can't happen if that's entirely about yourself. It all goes back to destroying self. It all goes back to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It all begins at that point. Final application I want to make here before we move on to provides is that he must unite himself to his wife perpetually. This is something we husbands must do. Do you remember when we talked about wives? And one of the things that I said about a submissive wife is that she is a covenant keeper. She is a covenant keeper. Keeper. Well, a husband is also a covenant keeper. He commits until death to maintain and strengthen this union. He takes Christ's view of marriage seriously. This is, how, how does Christ view marriage? He says this. So they, know, they are no longer two, no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man Separate, And Jesus will say in that passage, except in the case of sexual immorality. But I want to say this to all of us married folk here today. Think about this. When there is sexual immorality on the part of a spouse, the words of Jesus are not that that means one must get a divorce. The words of Jesus are that one is permitted to get a divorce, I believe, and there's debate over what that passage means. But a majority of evangelical Bible scholars as well as pastors hold that. In the case of sexual immorality, there is, it is permitted that one get a divorce. 
and also remarriage. But I want to I kind of plead with you on this. Sexual infidelity should never be a way out of a bad marriage. And that, I think, is something that we tend to do. If you think about it for a moment, you, you're married, your marriage is bad, you have all kinds of frustrations, you know the Bible says that you can't get a divorce, and then you find out, you find out, he or she had an affair. He or she has committed sexual immorality, and therefore, I mean, you, you're sad about that, but maybe deep down in your heart, you're thinking, this is it. Now I can do it. A way out. This is a way out of a bad marriage. That is not to think about marriage and divorce in a godly, biblical, gospel-centered way. And here's why. Because what are we modeling, husbands? Christ and the church. And when the church is unfaithful to her bride, Christ, does Christ write her a certificate of divorce and throw her to the side? No. We know that Christ preserves and he, he, he abides with, he endures his spouse. And so divorce in the case of sexual immorality should never be a way out of a bad marriage. It should be something that is done sadly, something that is done slowly, and something that is done with much, much prayer. So the Christ-like husband recognizes and maintains that the unity that exists with his wife must continue. So the, the Christ-like husband recognizes and maintains this unity that he has with his wife. The second thing I want to look at this morning is that he provides. The godly husband provides. And here's the main thing I want you to see. We've already considered the idea of the husband as provider when we looked at his role as the protector. And the discipler, as the protector, the husband is one who provides what for his wife? Security and safety. That's what it means to be a protector. You provide safety. And as we saw, as a discipler, he provides spiritually for his wife. He, he makes these spiritual provisions. He provides for her spiritual nourishment. And so we've already encountered this idea of the husband as provider. But at this point, I want to focus on the husband's responsibility to provide for his wife's most basic needs. This is an area that we have not yet covered. So look at Ephesians 5.29. Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. When Paul says that no one ever hated his own flesh, he is saying something that we all know intuitively. And that is that people naturally, though not always in the right way, right? I mean, we know this is the case. Naturally, though not always in the right way, people seek to satisfy their own most basic needs. Everybody does that. We all seek our own happiness, our welfare, our comfort, our survival. You don't have to train someone to seek those things for themselves. They may find them in drugs or something else that destroys them so that they find them in the wrong place. But they are ultimately going to that, even if it's suicide, because they believe that suicide or drugs or whatever else that might be destructive is that thing by which they will have some kind of solace, some kind of comfort, some kind of ease, peace, Welfare, happiness, whatever, fill in the blank. People naturally do that. The Puritan preacher Richard Steele wrote this, No one can touch or handle a man's sores so tenderly as himself. You know, you go to the doctor and you have a nurse sort of mess with you. you know, nurses are very gentle. 
with your sores. Mothers especially with their children's boo-boos. Very, very gentle, very easy. But no one takes care of you like you. No one does that. No one is quite so sensitive to your own needs. No one is quite so gentle and quite so caring as yourself. And because a husband and wife are united as one flesh, which we just talked about, a husband's natural care for himself ought to extend to his wife. And this is how Christ relates to his church as members of his body. And so look at verses 29 to 30. At the end of that, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. And there are two activities that kind of grow out of this. Two activities that we read about here. Nourishing and cherishing. And in a moment we'll look at this idea of cherishing. But right now I want to hone in on this idea that the husband nourishes his wife. What does this mean that he nourishes her? This Greek verb is used only one other time in the New Testament. And in fact, it's in our passage. It's in this passage about fathers. Where it talks about bringing up or educating your children. But that's not exactly what is meant in this particular usage of the verb. This, this word is used in, in, I think, the same way that it is here in Genesis 45.11 and 47. 17. In, in the Greek Old Testament, we see this very same word being used in the context of Joseph. So you remember Joseph. He is able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he tells the Pharaoh, based on his dreams, he had two dreams. The two dreams are one and the same. One about cows, one about corn. And he says to him that seven years of plenty will follow. And then after that, there will be seven years of famine. And so what does the Pharaoh do? He appoints Joseph to stockpile all of the extra food during the seven years of plenty so that during the seven years of famine that follow, there will be food to eat. And of course, all the peoples will come to Egypt and Egypt will grow great and strong and wealthy because everyone will sell everything they have in order to get food. And in these two places, Joseph is said to provide food for individuals. It means to maintain or supply with food. So here's the point. As Christ provides for the needs of his body, the church, we are instructed as husbands to provide for our wives. We are instructed to provide for our one flesh companions. And I think this really has several applications that we can look at. As we think about what does it look like for me to provide for my wife? I mean, of course, there are things that come immediately to mind. But I want to explore four ideas here as we think about providing for our wives. We work we monitor, we liberate, and we plan. We work, we monitor, we liberate, and we plan. What do I mean by these ideas as we think about what it looks like as husbands to provide? We work diligently to provide for the needs of our family. This is obvious. We get a job. <laughs> we go to work. We get a paycheck. We bring it home. And we put food on the table for our families. Now, I want to say this. This is a general principle. And the application of this will vary from family to family, from couple to couple. And so, for example, we see that in Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 wife, what does she do? She generates income. Now, that's not to say for those of you wives who don't generate income that you're not living up to the ideal. You're not living up to, to exactly what God has, has called you to do and be. But, but it does indicate for husbands that we're not talking here about exclusive provision. The husband is not the only one who provides for the family. It's not as though that entire weight is on him. But the primary weight 
of the providing for the family, as we read here, is on him. And this may uh, be broken up from time to time as there's disability or the pursuit of education. One goes to law school or medical school so that he can then graduate from that and go on to provide for his family. But the principle still remains the same. That at the heart of a husband's leadership, at the heart of a husband's love, and even more importantly, at the heart of a husband's imaging of the relationship between Christ and his church is this principle. A husband must provide for his wife. By extension, his family. So I want to read you this passage from Proverbs chapter 6. It has to do with an ant. Ants. We've recently called pest control. And I uh, had to deal with some of these. They're not really nasty. They're annoying. Roaches are nasty. Ants are just annoying. But we've had to deal with these little, these little things. Little tiny black ants. One of the most amazing things about this little animal, this little insect, is that this is probably mentioned more times in the Bible than most other kinds of, besides cattle, donkeys and horses, cows and oxen and so forth. It's mentioned more times than, than most other animals. And it's because we're supposed to look at the ant. And we're husbands, especially. We're supposed to look at the ant and be educated. We're supposed to look at that ant and say, Okay, God, I'll do that. So Proverbs 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Go to the ant, O lazy man who will not work. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, Officer or ruler, she pre prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And I want you to hear these words. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Here's what I want you to see, husband, all of us, we husbands. When you do that, you don't just bring down poverty on your own head. Because remember, you are one flesh with this person whom God has entrusted to your care. When we do that, we bring down poverty, not just on ourselves, but on our families. So 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 12 says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul goes on to say this, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so what are husbands called to do? At this point, it's this simple. Work diligently. Work hard for your family. Work well. We do that unto God. We read about slaves and masters, which carries over in our time to employers and employees, that we do that as unto the Lord. But here we are called specifically to do that so that we might provide for the needs of our families. But here's the thing. This can go all wrong. This can go sideways very quickly. Here's what happens. Maybe a man does this. He works hard, works long, he's diligent. He provides for his family. But he begins to idolize his work. He goes, he tips over onto the other side. Begins to idolize his work, find his worth in his work. Maybe he becomes prideful and he uses the fact that he's the provider against his wife. Don't give me grief, woman. I'm the one providing for this family. 
Maybe that's you. Hopefully you haven't said that or anything like it. But you become prideful towards your wife. You hold that over her head. I'm providing. I'm going to take a nap right now. I'm providing. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm providing. I'm going to go play golf. I'm providing. I'm going to spend two hours at the gym. Whatever it might be. I'm the provider here. I can do what I'd like. That's exactly the kind of attitude I think sometimes that husbands are tempted to have because we're the working man. We're the one who's working. I think it can also become an excuse for inactivity at home. You go work all day, you think you can just come home, take off. That's it. I've done my part. I've provided. I'm home. Now I get to chill. Now I get to just hang out. Now I get to do my own thing. I don't have to do this with the kids. I don't have to do this for you. I can just now unplug. So that's where it can go wrong. There's two extremes here. There's everything I just said, and then on the other extreme, there's the man who needs to look at the ant. So some of us may need to go today, leave, just stand out in your front yard, pull up a seat, anywhere, apparently in Georgia. You just pull up a seat, you look down, and watch. And you will see your teacher, the diligent, hard-working, industrious, never-resting, unfailing ant. So that's the first thing, we work. Secondly, another application that we can make here is that we monitor. We monitor the money. We monitor our money. Now, I want to say this about providing for our families. This may include some division of labor. This may include some delegation. I don't think that there's anything in God's word that suggests that husbands have to be the ones who take care of the finances. Absolutely. That, that husbands have to do, be the ones who you know, keep the Excel spreadsheet or whatever else it is. However else it is that you keep up with your expenditures or pay the bills or, or whatever. But it seems to me that part of what it means to be a provider is that you must monitor it. You must be on top of it. You must oversee it. This involves budgeting on one hand, but on the other hand, it involves not wasting money. Because look, the money that the Lord has given to us, husbands, that, that God has brought into our home should be used strategically and well in order to provide for our families and in order to serve other people. The first thing that we serve, the first people we serve is our families. We read in 1 Timothy 5.8. Listen to these words. Maybe you've read these before. Maybe you haven't. But if you refuse to provide for your family and work hard, monitor your money, take care of it so that you take care of your family, hear these words, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. That was the apostle, Paul. That's a serious indictment against husbands who squander the precious resources that God has entrusted to our families. That is a strong indictment. But we're also told that we have this money, this income, so that we can bless other people. So that we can help other people. And so what do we see with the Proverbs 31 woman? It's very interesting when you read through that passage. It's just such a wonderful passage of God's word. But what you see is this woman, all this language about how industrious she is. I mean, she's at the marketplace. She's putting clothes together. She's getting up early. She's making food. She's preparing for snow. I mean, she's doing all of this stuff. She's so hardworking and diligent and industrious. And she's just making things happen. And then it says, there's this, there's this little verse in there. That says that she extends her hand to the needy. She helps the needy. How is she able to do that? Because of what God has given to her. She's able to, she's a good steward with that. She brings that into the home well. And she's able then to bless other people because she's being smart with what God has given to her. If this is the case, 
If this is the case with wives, how much more is this the case for husbands who are leaders in the home? So that's the second. The third application here is we liberate. We liberate. And this is a simple idea. We liberate our families from debt. Debt is an enslaver of our homes. Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower, the borrower is the slave of the lender. Now I understand that in our world today, whether it's down to buying a house or a car or whatever else, there, there is in some ways, some could argue the necessity of some measure of debt. In fact, without any debt, you just won't have any credit. You won't be able to do anything. So there, you know, I learned that when I was in, like, just starting out in college. I realized I had zero credit and, and no one would take me because I had zero credit. So how do you find a credit card? It's just a circle. Uh, but it, the, the truth of the matter is that the Bible does not have a strong opinion of debt. That's a general principle. How you apply that, you do before the Lord in good conscience. But the Bible does not have lots of good things to say about debt. So I believe, based on this passage, that part of what it means to provide for our wives is that we look at debt and we begin to eradicate that. We begin to wage war on that. Because there's no way that we can, can provide a stable, nourishing, provision atmosphere for our families if we're strapped with debt. Finally, we plan. We plan for future nourishment. Nourishing our wives is not just about nourishing them today from paycheck to paycheck, but it is about nourishing them for the future. This involves savings, retirement, life insurance. If we just want to get really practical, these are the kinds of things that we do for our wives so that we make sure that a year from now, 10 years from now, if something happens to us, they have provision because that's who, whom God has entrusted to our care. We provide for them. We nourish them. Remember the Proverbs 31 wife again? I want to go back to her as she shimmers there at the end of that book of wisdom. Verse 25, it says, she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the time to come. Why does the Proverbs 31 wife laugh at the time to come? Because she is wise, she is diligent, she is industrious, she is proactive, and she looks ahead into the future and she makes sure that if something happens in the future, she has provided for that rainy day. And that is precisely what every husband, even more as the provider, the primary provider of his home, must do. He must plan. We husbands must plan. So to sum it up, a biblical husband, one who images Christ, and remember that, it all goes back to that. By doing this, we image our Savior who provides all of our needs, who takes care of us. When we get into a jam, when things are going wrong in our lives, what do we do? We pray. We pray. And we trust Christ. He's going to get me through this. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what kind of individual provisions I, I need, but he knows he's going to take care of me because I am part of his precious, precious bride. It's the same thing. We image Christ when we provide for our wives. As we finish up this morning, I want you to see as we come to the end of this passage that the husband, the godly husband, the Christ-like husband, treasures his wife. I just want to say there's a lot of overlap here as you think about all of these ideas, but I think in some ways they also build on each other. Take a look at the other word that we find in verses 29, in verse 29. This word cherishes. Verse 29 says this, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. 
As Christ cherishes his own body, the church, a husband must cherish his own one flesh companion, his wife. So this idea, cherish, it only appears one other time in the New Testament. Only one other time. And that's in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. And this is what it says. But we were gentle. This is Paul the Apostle speaking to the Thessalonians. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And this language of taking care is the same word. We were gentle like a nursing mother taking care or cherishing, that's the same word, cherishing her children. In the context of that passage, Paul describes how they did not make demands. They didn't come to town to the Thessalonians and say, we're apostles, you owe us. They didn't make demands. They were gentle. They were extremely affectionate to them. All of these are words. These, this is the language of that passage. They were extremely affectionate. They gave themselves entirely to them because the people there were dear to them. Paul says. They were dear to them. And this is exactly the way a nursing mother, which many of, the fo- many of you in our church can relate to even now, this is the same way that a nursing mother sees and relates to her tiny baby. She cherishes it. She treasures it as exceedingly precious. This is the way a mother views her baby. And this is the way husbands are called to view and relate to their wives. So look at Colossians, well, you don't have to turn there, but Colossians 3.19, listen to what it says there. Very simple. Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Do not be harsh with your wives. Treasuring your wife, seeing her as precious, cherishing her, that is the exact opposite of what it means To be harsh. This is not domineering. It is not demanding. It is not overbearing. It is not irritable or mean-spirited. That kind of attitude, especially as we think about our wives, maybe if they they struggle with certain areas of, of submission. As our wives struggle in their own sanctification, it's easy for us husbands to say, like that, just like that. We live there. We live there. We're overbearing. We're domineering. This is what you need to do. This is what the Bible tells you that you need to do. You're not submitting to me. This is the exact opposite. Exact opposite of what it looks like to a husband to be with his wife as a nursing mother is with her baby. None of these things. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know what this means, husbands? means being attentive, sympathetic, delicate. Have you ever thought about that? Delicate. Delicate with your wife. Not pushing our weight around, not stomping on her sensitivities, her emotions, her tears, her struggles. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and following says this, Love is patient and kind. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. These things are the opposite of what it means to treasure these precious, precious souls. These precious women whom God has entrusted to us men. Us Christian men who know every day how much our Lord Jesus cherishes us as precious. So precious in His sight. I want to just conclude with a few 
kind of very practical applications for us. Richard Steele, Puritan author, the one I quoted earlier, says this, Though she was not taken out of Adam's head, (laughs) this is a weird image, so neither out of his foot, but out of his side, near his heart. Do you treat your wife like your lifelong friend and companion? That's part of it. I mean, that's just basic, right? You know, when you fell in love with your wife, and, and I don't want to I use that language lightly. You know, you want to be careful with that. That can mean all kinds of silly things. But when you fell in love with your wife, when you began to sort of to, to be with her, when you began to, to date her, when you began to move towards marriage, and you were engaged, and you asked her to marry you, she was your friend. She was precious to you. You could sit and talk with her for hours. You loved her company. You listened. You listened with these ears. You took in what she said. You took in what was on her heart. You took in what was present there inside of that soul, that soul whom you treasure. But now, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. Not so much of a friend. Not so much of a companion. Just someone who's there care about every once in a while when you need something especially, whatever it might be, but not that kind of lifelong companion whom the Lord gave you. Know what she's called to and don't take advantage of her submission. See, husbands, it is easy to say, she's going to submit to me no matter what. I do what I want. She's going to submit to me because I know she's a Christian. She loves the Lord. She believes the Bible. So she's going to do her part no matter what. I don't have to, I mean, I'll I'll work on it. I'll work on it. I'll do my best. But, you know, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. I want you to understand something, husband, who thinks that way. Her God, her God watches over her. Her God will vindicate her. And her God will discipline you. You need to understand that. If that is your attitude towards your wife, taking advantage of her faithfulness to her God, to her master. God will handle that. 1 Peter 3, 7 even mentions prayers being hindered. You want your prayer life to flourish? Love your wife. Treasure your wife. Be understanding with her. I want to give you just two quick applications before we leave this morning. What about a tender disposition? What about a tender disposition? Before you come ramming in, what if you just took a moment and said, I'm going to soften this a little bit. If I need to go outside, if I need to take a drive, if I need to go and do something for about 10 minutes, if I need to get on my knees and pray, but I'm not going to come bulldozing in on my wife. I'm not going to come ramming into her. I'm going to take some time. I'm going to be soft. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be delicate. I'm going to be understanding. I'm going to have a tender disposition that communicates to her this always. You are precious to me. You are precious to me. A tender disposition and finally timely and gentle and I mean both of those words very much. Timely and gentle accountability with much grace and forgiveness. You sinned against me. What's wrong with you? Not that. Tender, loving, forbearing, gracious, gentle, sympathetic, Loving kindness towards your wife. This is the way that our sympathizing high priest relates to each of us. We know that. Moments of sin, moments of struggle. We've gotten on our faces before our Father in the name of His Son. 
And we have found rest. We have found forgiveness. We have found peace. Our consciences have been brought to a stable place. Why? Because we have a sympathizing high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. That same Christ Jesus whom we call Savior and Lord is the one who relates to us in this loving and gentle way. And that is precisely how we as husbands are called to relate to our wives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in the name of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus, we come as a church this morning to just declare, confess our love for you, God, because of, because of your Spirit who has written your law on our hearts. God, who gives us a, the fruit by which we love you, believe in you, rejoice in you, hope in you. God, thank you so much for your precious Holy Spirit. And we just come before you this morning, Father, and we, we come before you just considering and meditating upon our high priest, our Lord Jesus. This passage is meant to draw our hearts to his wonderful grace and his kindness towards us, his self-giving sacrifice on Calvary to save us from our sin, to defeat sin, death, and hell, to defeat the devil in our place there in much suffering, much agony, enduring your wrath and separated from you, Father, for us, that we might be redeemed, that we might be your possession. God, praise you that we're saved and we are in Christ. And God, would we extend that to our wives? Would you help us, Father? Would you help us be as Christ to them in all of these ways? God, every man in this room, we struggle and we find ourselves, our dark hearts and our dark actions in these points, in these verses, in these words, in these applications, each being applied to each man in different ways. And God, would you just humble us and would you convict us and bring repentance? And if there is a man in here whose heart is heart, would you chip it away? Would you break his heart, whatever it takes? Would you discipline him, God? so that he will turn to you in obedience, in faith, and that he will turn outward to his wife in love. God, we ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.